I'm Michael McMullen. And I'm John Mark Yates. Welcome to This Week in Church History. It's Independence Day, This Week in Church History. We have fireworks, celebration of American independence, and plenty of grilling out with the family and friends. My co-host, Mike McMullen, our favorite Brit, is of course out this week. But the War of American Independence is something that we have the privilege of celebrating in the United States, um, and it does affect church history. Many would claim that the War for American Independence began simply as a civil war amongst the British colonial empire, but it quickly escalated into something much larger with the infusion of aid from France and Spain and other uh, nations getting involved in the process. But without spending too much time here, I want to introduce this week's guest so we can talk a bit more about the American experience. Our author this week is Dr. Thomas Kidd. Dr. Kidd is the Distinguished Professor of History, the James Vardaman Endowed Professor of History and Associate Director of the Institute of the Studies of Religion at Baylor University. He also serves as my colleague at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, where he serves as Distinguished Visiting Professor of Church History. He's the author of multiple volumes like Who is an Evangelical? The History of a Movement in Crisis, America's Religious History, Faith, Politics, and the Shaping of a Nation, and George Whitfield, America's Spiritual Founding Father. Dr. Kidd released in the last couple of years a two-volume, highly readable overview of U.S. history entitled, aptly, American History. It's published by Broadman and Holman Academic. Volume 1 covers the years 1492 to 1877, and Volume 2 covers that same year, 1877, up to the present. They're also available in a single combined volume from Broadman and Holman as well. So, Dr. Kidd, welcome to This Week in Church History. Thank you for having me. Well, can you tell us a bit about your book? What it, what inspired you to write an overview of American history? Well, it was definitely a partnership between me and B&H Academic. Um, they had a sense that uh, a lot of Christian colleges sort of struggled to know what to use as far as an academic um, textbook for American history classes. Uh, the, you know, a lot of them are just left with kind of using secular uh press textbooks, which have, you know, disadvantages in a Christian college context. And, you know, there there are some uh, Christian perspective kind of academic uh, or American history uh, textbooks, but they tend not to be for the college level. And sometimes they're very heavy kind of Christian America, you know, Christian founding kind of, kind of approach where I take a, a little bit more moderating, you know, nuanced approach to those kinds of issues, which I know we'll talk about here in a minute. Um, and so, uh, so B&H basically persuaded me that there was a real gap there and that they had already asked a lot of Christian colleges, including SBC schools, about, right. uh, about whether they would be interested in such a textbook if we uh, produced one. And I had never really thought about doing a project like this. Uh, but as you know, someone who's trained primarily in American history, not not just American religious history, I thought, well, I mean, I, this is something I can do. And I have pretty broad teaching experience in American history topics because I work in a history department. Um, and, and so, sure, I, I thought, sure, I'll, I'll give this a try. And, and it actually ended up being a lot of fun. So I hope students enjoy it, too. Well, we were one of those institutions that said, yes, oh, uh, we you. would we would love to have that. <laughs> and in fact, our students use this volume uh, at Spurgeon College here at Midwestern. And uh, it has been uh, pretty much a godsend to be able to have a well-balanced historical treatment 
uh, of American history. Um, and it's it's visual presentation as well as the the narrative that you put together is well suited for students. And honestly, I would say for any of our listeners, uh, if you want to have a good, balanced understanding of uh, uh, American history, I would strongly encourage you to get the two volume set or the single volume uh, edition and, and just spend some time reading it. it it's very, very enjoyable uh, overall. Well, since this is Fourth uh, of July week, and uh, there there are a lot of questions about uh, where does the founding of America mean for uh, Christianity, and especially for evangelicalism or even Baptist, uh, as we're at a Baptist institution. So let me ask a couple of questions that uh, you can tease out. Some of these are uh, hot topics and in, in different areas. So let me start with this one: Who were the founding fathers? We we see that term founding fathers thrown around a lot by all types of individuals who are trying to uh, utilize history to kind of service their own uh, agendas politically or otherwise. Who were the founding fathers? Were they Puritan refugees? Were they leaders during the War of Independence? Who, who are they? Yeah, I think generally people mean the list of maybe five or six top tier uh, political founders in 1776. And 1787 with the framing of the Constitution. So, you know, Washington, Adams, Franklin, Hamilton, uh, you know, that, that kind of group, Jefferson. Um, and and uh, there has been, I think, an attempt by a number of historians, but including me, to, to try to broaden the list a little bit uh, to take in maybe some different perspectives. Even someone like George Whitfield, who in the title of my biography of Whitfield, I call America's spiritual founding right. father. Um, and now he didn't participate in the revolution. He died in 1770. So we don't know what he would have thought about the American revolution, but he is on the eve of the revolution. He's the best known person in America and obviously has a profound spiritual impact on what America was on the eve of the revolution. And so I, I think I have no qualms about the importance of that list of the five or six standard founding fathers, but I've, I think it, it's uh, not adequate uh, to just look at those five or six people. It, which is a good point, because when we start talking about who were the, the founding fathers, if we put it towards those five or six top individuals, Oftentimes, there's a debate over the nature of the beliefs of those founding fathers and whether you're um, a, a fan of David Barton or some of the others of uh, how they are trying to craft a narrative that the founding fathers were all Christians and they make them sound a lot like evangelicals. Does the historical record bear that out at all? Well, I think that one of the problems with uh, limiting the list of founding fathers to those five or six people is, th is that that group uh, were not typical Americans in 1776. Right. Um, you know, they're, they're not all, uh, but, but they tend to be college educated, uh, heavily influenced by liberal enlightenment theory and theology. Um, and so if we feel um, a, a, a sort of burden that we need these people to be Christians so that America can be a Christian nation, I think, I think it's, it, it can get in, you into some, um, you, you know, s sort of historical gymnastics that, that are kind of unnecessary. Um, now, when you look at the broader rank and file of the Patriot movement in the Revolutionary War, there's lots and lots of Christians. Right. Um, 
And, and that, you know, there's probably, I think, say, George Washington is probably a kind of moderate Anglican Christian. He's very private about his own faith. Um, uh, you know, Madison certainly has a more reformed background mm-hmm. in his Princeton education, but is very quiet about his own faith. Uh, you know, Hamilton has some profound Christian influences and seems maybe even after he got shot by Aaron Burr, that he he, you know, he asked for an Anglican minister to come and, right. and see about him. And so, you know, there's some signs maybe at the end of life that something was happening. But, uh, you know, Ben Franklin calls himself a deist. Right. Uh, so that's a pretty good place to start. Uh, you know, even though with Franklin, he grew up in a Puritan family in Boston. And so um, there's a deep Christian imprint on his mind and his way way of thinking. Um, but he, he doesn't believe in the divinity of Christ. Right. Um, and so that I mean, you can't, from a traditional perspective, you can't say that he's a Christian if, if he denies the divinity of Christ. Um, John Adams uh, makes it very clear late in life in his correspondence with Thomas Jefferson that he's a Unitarian, doesn't believe in the Trinity. Uh, Jefferson doesn't believe in the divinity of Christ, makes it very clear uh, pretty early on in his life that he, he shows doubts about the Trinity. Um, and so people like Adams and Jefferson are sort of Unitarian-type Christians. Right. You might call Jefferson a deist. Um, they They believe, all of them, in the providence of God, uh, they don't have the view of God as the distant, you know, clockmaker God who has gone away after creating the world. Um, but deists in, in the 18th century sometimes believed in providence, right? Uh, and they believed in Christian morality, and they believed some of them in an afterlife. Um, but that doesn't make you a Christian, right? Uh, from a you know small or o orthodox perspective, uh, you know, obviously the Trinity and divinity of Christ are essential issues. So that creates a picture of complexity, um, which oftentimes history provides for us. It's, it's not all neat and clean, and uh, oftentimes it it makes it a little bit harder for us to, to make just real quick decisions about that. Let me ask this question. Um, a lot of times when we're talking about the Founding Fathers, uh, there can be woven in a story of American exceptionalism. How does this play into the broader ways that we talk about the American experience or the the narrative of the American nation. Yeah, it goes back, I think, some to the fact that the founding fathers, at least occasionally during the course of the revolution and the framing of the Constitution, uh, almost to a person expressed some uh, surprise at the great work of providence that had happened in the creation of the American nation. Shall a nation be born at once? They, they said, I mean, that's amazing what's happened. And so even uh, the more uh, liberal or deistic leaning founding fathers could see around them that something special had happened. Um, and, and just the circumstances of the American founding uh, struck them as as extraordinary. And it is an extraordinary story. Uh, the, the improbability of independence and right. uh, the, you know the the framing of the Constitution, which I think is the greatest governing document in the history of the world. Um, but you can go too far with it, I think, uh, especially when people at the time of the founding, but al- also through present day, have uh, maybe tended to equate America with uh, biblical Israel, right? Um, and talk about you know God's new American Israel, this this sort of thing. I, I don't think that we have any basis for equating biblical Israel and any nation 
besides biblical Israel. Um, you know, maybe could be we could debate about the relationship of biblical Israel to modern Israel, but uh, in in that sense, uh, you, you know, America is not a special, unique, chosen nation in a way that God has revealed to us His special purposes out of all the nations of the earth. Right. As a theological matter, I just think that that is dangerous territory to to get on. Um, it it doesn't to me it doesn't undercut. Uh, our ability to have pride in the American tradition, uh, the tradition of liberty, uh, the the wisdom of the Constitution, uh, the the courage of the founding fathers. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- these are all uh, perfectly good things for American Christians or any Americans to affirm. Um, but but this sort of special chosenness, theological calling, savior of the world kind type of rhetoric about America, I think, pretty quickly becomes. Uh, unseemly and theologically risky. One of the challenges when we look at uh, the founding of our nation is the way in which we embrace the concept of slavery. Mm. And um, just this last year in in 2019, the New York Times did a whole special uh, on this and and was really expressing uh, some uh, intimate ties with slavery that perhaps many of us had had never heard before or didn't fully understand. So let's let me ask you, what role did slavery play in the founding of our nation? Oh uh, well, it's and it's a very controversial issue, and it was controversial with the uh, 1619 project that, right. that was done on the 400th anniversary of the first recorded. Uh, shipment of slaves coming into Virginia. Uh, there were slaves there before then, but but there's a famous record of of uh, a shipment of, of of a couple dozen slaves coming to Virginia, and this is seen as uh, the the beginning moment of of the tragedy and um, sinfulness of American slavery. Um, it, it's really important in American history. Um, it's really important in the founding. Um, it's there in the Constitution. Um, it's uh, the three-fifths compromise and the runaway slave clause in the Constitution. I mean, it's it's built into the founding. Uh, and generally, the laws at the time protected slavery, and a lot of slave owners are helping to create the American government, including that uh, a number of the, that top tier of founders, including some surprising ones like Ben Franklin, mm-hmm. who made a lot of money off of uh, runaway slave ads. And he was a slave owner for much of his life. Right. We think of it as just a Southern thing, but it's not just a Southern right. thing. Uh, Northerners are deeply complicit in the slave trade. Um, and some of them, like Franklin, were slave owners. Um so it, it's it's uh, it's deeply problematic, um, and it's it's the greatest uh, moral and ethical dilemma in American history. Um, but I also think it it, it also requires nuance. Um, you know, I thought I thought that the focus on 1619 was really valuable, in the sense that I think just a lot of Americans, probably especially white Americans, don't know. What 1619 represents, mm-hmm. um, and it it's a good thing to have in your sort of American civic toolbox to know that's the first document and instance of a shipment of slaves. That's something Americans should know. Right. Um, the New York Times also called 1619 the American founding. It was interesting, and, and I, I thought that was excessive. Mm-hmm. I, I I I'm 
I'm not necessarily even attached to 1776 having to be the American founding. I think there's lots of American foundings. I mean, if you're denominationally Baptist, the beginning of the Baptist movement in America is a really important founding moment for you. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, you know, there's lots of threads and narratives and so forth. And I still think 1776 is as obvious as any option is the American founding. But, uh, you, you know, I, do, I don't think that we need to define American history by reference to slavery. Uh, I would prefer to just leave it as an extraordinarily important uh, development in American history, theme in American history, and we're still living with the consequences of it now. But yeah. it's not the defining characteristic of American history. That's, that's a good way to kind of think about that. And I think it it also moves to my next question for you as pastors, as church leaders, um, as those who serve churches in America, how do we connect to a sense of civic pride as Christians, knowing these fundamental flaws on one side, but also knowing that as Christians, our citizenship actually is in heaven. It's not here. So what role does that civic pride even play in the life of a believer. Yeah. I mean, I heard someone say one time, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, this civic pride is sort of like, you know, Mother's Day where everybody, you know, thinks that, that their mother is the best mother, you know, and you talk that <laughs> way and Mother's Day, but you, you understand that other people think that too. And you're okay with that, uh, that they think their mother is the best mother. And, and we're like that with nations, you know, I mean, I, I think, um, we should be proud about the good things in American history, and there's many, many good things. But mm-hmm. I'm perfectly fine with someone from Nigeria thinking the same thing or China thinking the same thing about their country. Uh, you, you know, we're, whatever nation it is, I mean, they're going to have reasons for national pride. Right. Um, and, and, and that's just a good thing. I mean, even the ancients knew that, 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 that there's a virtue in that kind of civ- civic attachment and support of your country. And you know, being proud of the good things and accomplishments that you've had, but it doesn't mean that your country is better than everybody else or should, you know, sort of tell the rest of the world that about the way that it's going to be. Um, and I think we have a special responsibility for humility because of the inordinate power of America in the 20th and 21st century. Right. Uh, and, and power often, well, everybody knows power often has come attached with arrogance for any nation in world history. And so, you know, we've got to guard against that. But I think, I mean, we're perfectly free, including American Christians, to be proud of the good things about. And and so I would include in that uh, the wisdom of the Constitution, the tradition of American liberty, compromised as it was in important ways by slavery and other problems in American history. And from a Baptist perspective in particular, I think religious liberty is yeah. um, something that we can almost just unequivocally celebrate as a wonderful thing. And not utterly unique, but a wonderful thing about the American tradition is the achievement of religious liberty for dissenters like Baptists. It's a great thing that we should be proud of religiously and civically. Absolutely. And it just has unbelievable ramifications, uh, even when we think about um, the, the means in which we've been able to engage other nations and uh, in a positive way as believers, has everything to do with the religious liberty here at home before we're able to go elsewhere as missionaries or others to share about Christ. Now, I ask this question of a lot of our um, uh, our guests. I like to ask, uh, you know, as historians, we can't tell every story. You had a limited amount of space 
and a lot of history to cover in your uh, in your volumes here. What is one anecdote that just didn't make the cut, but you thought maybe our listeners would enjoy? Well, uh, I, I think that it, it it was a challenge in the book uh, that I did not want it to turn into some gargantuan volume, right? But but it needs to cover a lot of material, um, and and they're just basic issues that every American history book is going to have to cover about presidential elections and wars and these these sorts of things. I, I wanted to cover uh, as much as I could about just regular people's lives in illustrative ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's, you know, there's stories about migrant workers and industrial workers in the, you know, the early 20th century and these sorts of things and, and names of people that uh, almost no readers are going to sit know about this person, right. but they're illustrative of of trends that are happening. But I think one of the things I had the most fun with and I wanted to do more with was American pop culture. Right. Um, uh, and and I, I realized that I get to sort of pick, you know, what musicians and what, uh, you know, pop culture phenomena that that I talk about. And so I have you know, things about, you know, popular sports and, uh, uh-huh. you, you know, wrestling and boxing and basketball and football and the coming of Monday night football. And, you know, some things <laughs> I just thought I'm just enjoying <laughs> writing about this history. You know, as a religious historian, I don't usually get to talk about this. Uh, and I, we just talked a minute ago that I, I'm, I'm quite a big country music fan and right. I, and I found myself very restricted about what I could talk about <laughs> in the history of country music. I knew I just had to talk about Merle Haggard because his life does intersect with issues about the Dust Bowl and the migration out to California. And he's part of the, the Oki migration out right. to, out to California. So not only is he an absolutely brilliant musician, but he, but he also, his life and his family really intersects some important 20th century trends. But I just couldn't keep going with, uh, you know, Willie Nelson, who briefly attended Baylor, uh, <laughs> and, uh, you, you know, that like uh, Waylon Jennings and so forth of people that I'm just like, I can't believe I'm actually leaving these people out, but so it had to stop somewhere. Does this uh, portend to a future volume of um, the intersection of country music and uh, and religious history? Well, in there's a book length story that absolutely could be told there. Well, there you go. That could be your next book. As <laughs> we'll if see. you don't already have a list a mile long that you're writing. I'll get to it at some point. Well, thanks for joining us, Dr. Kidd. We really appreciate it. And thank you, listener, for joining us for the discussion about uh, about American history uh, on This Week in Church History. Remember to go out and purchase Dr. Kidd's volume, American History, which is available at the Sword and Trial Bookstore here on Midwestern's beautiful campus in Kansas City, Missouri, or on our online bookstore. You can find links to Dr. Kidd's books and any other information linked in the show notes below. We look forward to joining you all next week.